The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, September 23rd. In today's news, Senate Republicans race to confirm President Trump's Supreme Court nominee before Halloween, and it's probably going to be Amy Coney Barrett. A government shutdown is averted, at least until after the election. And mine executives are caught on hidden camera bragging about their influence over politicians. But first, the big idea. The first coronavirus vaccine that aims to protect people with a single shot has entered the final stages of testing in the United States in an international trial that will recruit up to 60,000 participants. The experimental vaccine being developed by pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson is the fourth vaccine to enter the large phase three trials in the U.S. that will determine whether they are safe and effective. Paul Stoufels, the chief scientific officer at J&J, predicted to our science writer Carolyn Johnson that there may be enough data to have results by the end of the year. And he said that the company plans to manufacture one billion doses next year. Three other vaccine candidates have a head start with U.S. trials that began earlier in the summer. But the vaccine being developed by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is a division of J&J, has several advantages that could make it logistically much easier to administer and distribute if it's safe and effective. The company is initially testing a single dose, whereas the other vaccines being tested in the U.S. require a return visit to the doctor and a second shot three to four weeks after the first one to trigger a protective immune response. The J&J vaccine can also be stored in liquid form at refrigerator temperatures for up to three months, whereas two of the front-runner candidates must be frozen or kept at ultra-cold temperatures for long-term storage. The U.S. government has invested billions of dollars in an array of promising vaccine technologies, including $1.5 billion to support the J&J effort and an advanced purchase of 100 million doses. The J&J vaccine is the second to use what's called a viral vector approach, which takes a harmless virus and inserts it into a gene that contains the blueprint for a distinctive part of the coronavirus. J&J, like other vaccine companies, promised to publish the full protocol for its trial, which includes detailed information on how researchers will determine whether it's safe and effective. The protocol also includes the rules by which an independent committee would take peeks at the data over the course of the trial to see whether there are clear early signs of either success or failure. This news comes as the FDA prepares to announce tougher standards for emergency authorization of a vaccine. That will decrease chances that a vaccine is going to be cleared in the United States before Election Day. The FDA is issuing the guidance to boost transparency and public trust as it approaches this momentous decision on whether to decide a vaccine is safe and effective. The guidance, which is far more rigorous than what was used for emergency clearance of hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma, is an effort to shore up public confidence in an agency that has made so many missteps during this pandemic. While it's being reviewed by lawyers at the White House Office of Management and Budget, elements of it are already being shared with the vaccine manufacturers. Under the draft, which was obtained by us, the FDA would ask manufacturers seeking an emergency authorization 
a far quicker process than a traditional formal approval, to follow participants in large-stage clinical trials for a median of at least two months, starting right after they receive the second vaccine shot. Remember the others besides J&J, you need two shots. As a sign the vaccine works, the FDA is also likely to look for at least five severe cases of COVID-19 in the placebo group for each trial, as well as some cases of the disease in older people. These standards, plus the time it will take companies to prepare their applications and for the agency scientists and lawyers to review the data, make it highly improbable that any vaccine will get that emergency authorization before November. The agency has previously said that any vaccine it approves must be at least 50% more effective than the placebo. Moderna and Pfizer began their trials back on July 27th. They took about a month to get 15,000 people to enroll, which is the halfway point for their planned enrollment of 30,000 people. The trials are designed for people to receive the second shot either three or four weeks later. Two months of follow-up would make it unlikely that the companies would have enough data before mid-November because of the time lag there with that second shot. One of the reasons the government is taking these steps right now and making a big show of it is because this president's politicization of science has taken a severe toll on public confidence. A new poll from the Pew Research Center shows that just barely over 50% of Americans say they would be willing to take a coronavirus vaccine if it were available right now. And that's down from 72% three months ago. A lot of that is because they don't trust that the scientists are actually making the decisions. Now, as our country officially surpassed 200,000 coronavirus deaths yesterday, rising new case numbers are spurring warnings about a coming autumn surge. Organizations that track the virus, including The Post, have logged recent increases in case numbers and test positivity rates. Hospitalizations and deaths remain lower nationally than at their midsummer peak, but those numbers always lag several weeks behind trends in new infections. 27 states in Puerto Rico have shown an increase in the seven-day average of new confirmed cases since the beginning of this month. My home state of Minnesota just set a record high for seven-day averages, along with Montana, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and Utah. Experts think we're just in the beginning of what's going to be a market increase in the coming weeks. Finally, here's a startling stat. From California's Imperial Valley to suburban Boston, this contagion has killed more than 36,500 Latinos in the United States. Workers at Midwestern meatpacking plants and on construction sites in Florida are getting sick and dying of a virus that's exacerbating historic inequalities in communities where residents, many of whom have been deemed essential workers, struggle to access health care at all. The undocumented remain largely invisible. The disparities are particularly acute in Texas, where people who identify as Hispanic or Latino comprise 40% of the state's population. They're far more likely to be hospitalized, face financial ruin, or die of the virus than their white neighbors. The burden on Hispanics is diverse, affecting recent migrants to Houston, natives of San Antonio, indigenous immigrants in Austin, Dallas business owners, or those who called the borderlands their home before it was Texas. When the Lone Star State reworked its coronavirus data in July, it added 600 additional virus deaths that had been uncounted, and half were Latino. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Senate Republicans locked down the votes to clinch holding a confirmation vote for whomever President Trump nominates to succeed the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
Mitt Romney signed on yesterday. Republicans, her holding firm, four senators would have needed to defect. It's going to only be two. Trump said that he will name his choice this Saturday. Everyone we're talking to on Capitol Hill and at the White House says that Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit continues to be seen as having the inside track. Two advisors to the president say that Barrett remains the frontrunner after meeting with him on Monday, and Trump told other people on Tuesday that he was likely to pick her. But the president has not yet met Barbara Lagoa, who lives in Miami and is on the 11th Circuit. Some of his advisors are cautioning against making a choice until he interviews her. These people, supportive of Lagoa, hope she can charm the president and cause him to reconsider. After Republican members on the Senate Judiciary Committee huddled privately yesterday, Chairman Lindsey Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, decided to tentatively plan to schedule the confirmation hearing for the week of October 12th, it's coming up fast, and then a committee vote near the end of the following week with a vote on the floor before Halloween. That's a very aggressive timeline, but Democrats have essentially no power to stop them. With ACB, which is what everyone in conservative legal circles calls her as the front runner for the seat, we can start to game out how she'd affect the country's jurisprudence. A court that has six conservatives could force Chief Justice John Roberts to change his incremental tendencies. Both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh already have joined Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito in expressing impatience with the court's previous rulings on abortion. All have called for re-examining some of the court's decisions involving strict boundaries between government and religious organizations. And all have said it's time for the court to re-examine whether state and local gun control laws violate Second Amendment rights. It is a near certainty that Trump's new pick, but especially Barrett, will share those concerns on all three of those themes. Barrett joined a dissent on the circuit about a ruling that found unconstitutional, an Indiana law banning abortion sought because of the sex or disability of a fetus. The panel ruled, as other courts have, that the Supreme Court precedent did not allow questioning of a woman's reasoning for an abortion before viability. Barrett disagreed. Four of the Supreme Court's conservatives, all of them but Roberts, have at one time or another questioned the court's reluctance to review those gun control rulings. And Barrett, notably, dissented from a panel not long ago that upheld the government's right to withhold a gun permit from a felon. She said the felon had already served his sentence. This would make it vastly easier for lots of people who have been convicted of crimes to get guns. Ginsburg, of course, not only played a critical role in voting in favor of LGBTQ rights, but inside the court, she also played a central role in keeping religious exemptions within very narrow boundaries. Her absence on the court and her replacement by someone like Barrett would tip the scale toward curtailing LGBTQ rights. Barrett publicly signed on to a letter a few years back supporting, quote, marriage and family founded on the indissoluble commitment of one man and one woman. She's also reportedly a member of a conservative group called People of Praise. It's a self-described charismatic Christian community with a mixture of Roman Catholic and Pentecostal traditions. Until 2018, the group described its female leaders as handmaids. Number two, the House last night overwhelmingly passed a bipartisan spending bill to avert a government shutdown that would have happened on September 30th, just a day after the first presidential debate next week. The 359 to 57 vote sends the bill to the Senate, 
which could take it up later this week and then send it to the president. White House officials say they don't want to shut down right now, and Trump's expected to sign the bill, though he's always wavered at the last minute in these kinds of scenarios in the past, so never say never. But the deal was negotiated by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in a chaotic series of events over the past several days. Talks abruptly collapsed on Friday night after Ginsburg's death, just as a deal was within reach. They were dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But then Pelosi released a partisan bill on Monday. Republicans swiftly rejected it. Then on Tuesday, Pelosi and Mnuchin resumed negotiations and sat down. Then late Tuesday night, Pelosi announced that they'd reached a deal, and then her members and most Republicans voted for it. In exchange for agreeing to pump funds into the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is a farm bailout program, something Trump was pushing for, Pelosi secured $8 billion for a variety of nutrition programs, including for school children who have been adversely impacted by the pandemic. That's a significantly larger sum than was on the table Friday night. This short-term spending legislation, known in Washington parlance as a CR, for continuing resolution, will keep the government funded through December 11th. Number three, mine executives privately bragged about their influence over elected officials, including U.S. senators, a direct line to the White House, but routed through a third party to hide it from public view, easy access to Alaska's governor, a successful push to unseat nine Republican state lawmakers who opposed their plan to build a massive gold and copper mine, the biggest in North America, near Bristol Bay in Alaska, Those were just some of the many boasts made by two top executives of a company trying to build the Pebble Mine in videotapes that were secretly recorded by an environmental group and shared with my colleague Juliet Eilperin. It was a rare glimpse into private discussions surrounding the company's heated campaign to win federal permits for this project, which environmentalists say will destroy the most pristine part of Alaska and decimate its world-famous sockeye salmon fishery. The conversations were secretly recorded over the past month and a half by the Environmental Investigation Agency. Posing as potential investors in the mine, the firm conducted Zoom calls in which the mine's sponsors detailed how they sought to curry favor with politicians from Juneau to D.C. The tapes feature separate conversations with two of the key men behind this project, Roland Thiessen, the CEO of the Canadian-based Northern Dynasty Minerals, and Tom Collier, the CEO of its U.S. subsidiary, Pebble Limited Partnership. Thiessen described both of the state's Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, as politicians who are publicly making noises about the project to appear sensitive to environmental concerns, but ultimately have assured them that they won't stand in the project's way. Both senators deny this is the case. Collier, who worked as the chief of staff to Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt during Bill Clinton's presidency, said that he is registered as an independent in Alaska, but a well-known Republican fundraiser in the state. Then he added on the hidden tape, quote, having said that, it's entirely possible that we may have Joe Biden as president. And if we do, I'm going to brush off my Democratic credentials and start using them much more actively than I do now. This is a guy who is going to get a $4 million bonus if the mine receives a favorable record of decision from the Army Corps of Engineers, a decision that's expected soon. And then he'll get another $8.4 million if that permit withstands a legal challenge. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, September 23rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.